Good morning, everyone. Well, it's been a special morning so far, and just uh, praying that it continues, and just that today will be an enlightening and uh, just really challenging day. We are continuing in the book of Esther today, but wanted to bring everybody up to speed, uh, just to, for those of you who've been going through the journey, to remind you where we are, and those of you who are new with us, just to help you kind of contextualize what we are talking about. So, uh, we're going through this series, Dicer Deity, uh, which we uh, have as a staff, as a pastoral staff, has, have gone through and we found these eight Dicer Deity moments, or what we're calling doored moments in the story of Esther, where something happens and we have to ask the question, was this Dicer Deity, was this just fate, or was God doing something here? The interesting thing about the book of Esther is, is as it relates to the Bible, it's uh, a book that has no mention of God, miracles, angels, uh, anything like that that you would typically associate with a book in the Bible. And because of that, many uh, people, uh, God kind of people, faith community, people of faith have, have tried to interject uh, some sort of spirituality into the book of Esther. They've tried to add a miracle here or, or God in, in a certain place uh, um, over there and, and different things like that. But they have all failed. God has preserved the book of Esther the way He intended it to be. And I'm really thankful for it because I believe Esther's story is like our story. Because you know, most of us or all of us, we, we don't go through life and, with angels showing up and saying, do this, or we don't have, you know, God's booming voice saying, hey, make a left turn here, you know, the pot of gold's down the road, or, or different things like that, that we're a lot like Esther where we are going through life doing the best we can, trying to be people who are followers of Christ and, and really trying to discern God's will. So, we've had several Dicer Deity moments so far, and I want to quickly go through that. In chapter 1, we had our first doored moment, Dicer Deity moment, where we asked the question, uh, when Xerxes dumped uh, uh, Vashti because of his fearful advice from his advisors, was God doing something there, or was that just random chance? And then in chapter 2, we had three of them where, uh, remember, uh, Esther gained favor with the, the, the harem director or whatever, Haggai, I'm not sure what was actually on his business card, but the guy who, who ran the, the harem for Xerxes, and remember he was a eunuch and all this, so no monkey business was happening there. And, and uh, you know, was it dice or deity? That he gained, or that Esther gained favor with him, and then there was also Mordecai in the same chapter, who was Esther's uncle and adoptive father because her parents were killed. Was it Dicer deity that Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time to to overhear a plot against Xerxes, and then? Was a dicer deity that Xerxes does not reward Mordecai? Remember, we kind of struggle with that. It, is our God a God that will actually hold back blessings from our life, rewards from our life because of a bigger plan? 
And then finally, we had in chapter 3, uh, Haman, who's the kind of the bad guy in the, in the story, casting lots to see when the best time it would be to have genocide against the Jews. And then last week, Pastor Dan spoke in, in chapter uh, 4, and, and uh, kind of the big Esther moment where Mordecai had, had challenged Esther to approach the king, and she's like, eh, I don't know, and you know, he's kind of crazy, and all of this kind of stuff. And he says, how do you know that you are not in this position for just a time as this? And then she goes to the point where she's like, well, if I die, I die. So that brings us up to speed and brings us to chapter 5, just to remind you that our New Testament Scripture that we're balancing all this through and, and, and filtering everything it happens through is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul writes, and all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called to, according to His purpose for them. So if you open up your um, Bibles to Esther chapter 5, we're going to do it a little bit differently today. Uh, I'm actually going to break the story up into two parts, and I'm going to read the first part, and then I'm going to go back and talk about some historical context, and then some personal context, how it uh, impacts us, and then we'll hit the second section. So, Esther chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day of the fast, remember uh, Esther asked Mordecai and Israelites and her to fast for three days, on the third day of the fast... Esther put on her royal robes and entered the inner court of the palace, just across from the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing there in the inner court, he welcomed her and held out the gold scepter to her. So Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. The king asked her, what do you want, Queen Esther? What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half the kingdom. And Esther replied, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for the king. The king turned to his attendants and said, tell Haman to come quickly to the banquet as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. And when they were drinking wine, the king said to Esther, Now tell me what you really want. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half of the kingdom. Esther replied, This is my request and deepest wish. If you have found favor with the if I have found favor with the king and it pleases the king to grant my request and do what I ask please come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for you then I will explain what this is all about So we got a lot of kind of uh cultural obstacles to to jump over in order to kind of really understand what is going on here? First of all, uh, I think it's important to note that uh, Esther's fast uh, being three days. In the ancient Near East, um, 
ancient customs were that you would actually start your fast around noon on one day, and then you would fast the whole next day, and then, and then at breakfast or break fast in, in the morning of the following day, the third day, that would be the end of your fast. So in actuality, what's going on here is not like a full three days like we would think about, you know, uh, 72 hours, but it's, it's actually more 40 to 45 hours. And this is important because this is a sacred echo of, of Jesus in the tomb. And, and a lot of times people, I get this question every year, you know, like, you know, they're like, well, if Jesus died at, you know, six o'clock, uh, around six o'clock on, on Friday, and then Sunday morning he was raised from the dead. That, how's that three days? And that's not three days in our culture, but in the ancient Near East, that, that is definitely in line with three days. So after this three days, she gets all, you know, gussied up. She gets on her royal robes and is, is looking good, and, and, and she goes in, and in verse 2, It says, when he saw Esther, Queen Esther, standing there in the inner court. And here we have have kind of a a clue of kind of what's going on here. You see, when you were in the presence of the king, you were meant to be prostate. You were were meant to be laying on on your stomach. And what is Esther doing here? Standing, yes, she is, she is not only coming to the king uninvited, but she has a very different kind of uh, outlook. Like she's coming with a lot of confidence that she's standing in his presence. And Xerxes, obviously knowing the risk to Esther's life that, that, that this young girl is coming to him, he's probably thinking like, wow, you know, something... something uh, must be really important. So he puts out his golden scepter and, and wants to hear about it. And, and he even follows up that invitation by saying, hey, you can have anything, even up to half of my kingdom. Now, how she responds is a little bit puzzling to most of us in you know, consumer America, right? Like if you go to you know, Bill Gates, right? And Bill Gates says, hey, you know what? You can have anything you want up to half of my empire. You know, who here really would be like, dude, Bill, I just, I'd like to take you to McDonald's, have a, have a dinner. Is that cool? You know, I just hang out a little bit. No, you'd be like, dude, you know, half of your kingdom, that's like a gajillion dollars, you know, and, you know, I want, I want some of this, but this is not really, um, uh, uh, what Xerxes is saying. In fact, uh, if, you, if you know your history, uh, actually another woman was offered the exact same thing from Xerxes in history. And this is how King Xerxes uh, responded. There was uh, a, a woman who went into Xerxes' presence. Uh, her name was Ardenite. And, and he said, Ardenite, you know what? You can have anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And she was actually the wife of, of Xerxes' brother. And, and she said, you know what I would really like, King Xerxes? I would like your royal robe. You know what King Xerxes did? 
He gave her her robe and then shortly after killed her, her husband, and her whole family. Okay, so Esther knows this, knows that she is approaching King Cray-Cray, and when King Cray-Cray says, you can have up to half my kingdom, say, hey, how about a meal? You know, it, you know so we got to remember, and I keep on coming back, we got to remember who this girl, not, you know, not a 40-something, you know, seasoned woman, but a, but a girl is up against, and how how wise she is, and, and how she approaches this. And she replies, yes, you know, if it pleases the king, I'd like you to come to my banquet. The actual words, let the king come today, actually in Hebrew, and this kind of goes to the point of scholars and people trying to spiritualize the book of Esther. A lot of ancient manuscripts actually uh, highlight the first letter of each one of those words in Hebrew, let the king come today, uh, because those letters actually spell out Yahweh, which is uh, the very name of God. But, but again, uh, that's, that's reaching, and I, and I tell you that just to show how people have tried to spiritualize this book in, in different ways. And Obviously, I think that we've seen through this series that such cryptic codes are not needed because we can see that God is fully present in the whole story of Esther. And hopefully we can connect that God, if God was fully present in the book of Esther, even though somebody wasn't yelling Yahweh, 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 that He's fully present in our lives as well. So, we get there, and, and they have this banquet, right? Esther's there. King Xerxes is there. Haman is there. You know, they're drinking. They're laughing. And then uh, King Xerxes says, all right, Esther, what do you really want? You know, King Xerxes, you know, he knows women, right? He's like, you just didn't want to have dinner with me. You know, obviously, there's something else. And at that moment, I think those of us, you know, who are kind of like, uh, want, the, want the story to move forward and everything, and, and, and we want, you know, Esther to be the hero, and we want Haman to be taken down, you know, when she says, I'd like you to come to dinner tomorrow, we're like, oh, really? I mean, we're all a little disappointed, right, in Esther at this point? Come on, be honest. I mean... We want this girl to roar like a lion. We want to see Haman be taken down. You know, we want all this. And instead, it really looks like, you know, she, she chickened out. And, you know, and maybe, you know, she chickened out, and, or, but maybe she is kind of following God's timing here. Either way, it's a huge risk. Because, let's face it, King Xerxes is not the most stable guy in the world. You know, I mean, he's good today, but holy cow, the bipolar may swing all the way to the other side tomorrow. So, I mean, hey, you know what? He, you know, maybe ask while, while he's in an agreeable kind of, kind of move, but, you know, she, she doesn't do that. And I think, again, historically, we got to look at this and understand, you know, contextually, she's about to take down and accuse the second most powerful man in the world, Haman. And, 
and knowing that, that Xerxes trusts this man explicitly. Also, you know, she is, she is on favored time. That she didn't ask, you know, to, she wasn't asked to come. So it's really, really tenuous. But also, I don't think that we should discount that God, that she is under the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And, and that, you know what? Maybe the Holy Spirit was just strong in her right there and saying, you know what? I know Morty wants me, Mordecai wants me to, to do something here, wants me to throw Haman under the bus, but I just don't feel like the time is right. And it is actually this delay that, that we'll see in the next part allows actually Haman to set the stage for his pride to go really before his fall. So what's our connection in all this? You know, you know, all this happened a long time ago. What's our personal connection? And, and I think our personal connection is this. We need to be sensitive to God's timing and, and not demand that God operate on our schedule. I mean, I know I personally do that. And, you know, it's like, you know, God, you know, hey, you know, time's a ticking here. It'd be really nice if you showed up. It'd be really good if you showed up and did something right here because we really need you, you know. But, but, you know what, being people of faith and understanding, you know, we can trust God with everything, including timing. But this is really tough in our culture. I mean, we, we have seen probably all of us, literally hundreds of movies, right, that all resolve by the time we leave for the most part. And if they don't resolve, we don't like the movie because we like resolution. We're like, well, what happened to, you know, so-and-so? What happened to this? We want everything tied up. And I think that this story shows and teaches us that God is the God of the process as well, that, that He designs what's going on, and, and we need to trust Him with the timing and with the process. In a lot of ways, I was trying to think about this in a way that something that we've all experienced, and it actually happened to me this week. Uh, I got a new program for my computer, a new program that promised to make me more productive right? I mean, that's why we buy programs is we want it to make our lives better. We want to be more productive or something like that. I mean, none of us buy programs because we want to be more frustrated. We don't buy programs because we want our computers to crash. I mean, that happens usually more times than not. But, but the, the, the sales pitch is, you know, buy this program, download this program, and your life is going to be so much easier and more productive and stuff like that, unless it isn't, or, you know, it probably isn't. So I bought into, bought into that, and I was like, okay, you know what, I'm going to buy this, this program. It, it, it's an, it was an a, a email syncing program, I know, woo wild man. But, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, I need some help with my email and having ever, it all kind of the same place and up to date and all this. And this company's all like, oh yeah, we have this program that can, you know, make all this magic happen and it's web voodoo and it's going to be great. And I'm like, okay, I'm sold. You know, this is what I want. So this is the process that I went through. I, I believed in, in the program. 
So then I downloaded the program and waited. And again, my mind was like, I want to be more productive. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, I'm downloading the program and I'm waited. And then I opened up the program and you know what it said to me? A message came up and said, it is strongly suggested you close all programs during the installation process. I'm trying to be more productive here. How can I be more productive if I'm shutting down all my programs in order for your stupid program that's probably going to make my life miserable anyway is, is, is installing? But I did it. Then once I installed it, I opened up the program. I was ready to be productive. I was ready to be a good pastor and answer emails and do all those things. And I got this message saying, please wait while changes are being made to your system. And then I got the little thing. I don't know what that's called. But you know what it is, right? The little thing, it makes you not productive. So finally, it says your program is ready to be used. Pastor Mark, you are about to be more productive than you have ever been. You are going to be an email answering juggernaut. So I clicked on it, and then I got this message, no joke. Important updates are needed to be installed. Please restart your computer to continue. Are you kidding me? All, all of these things, I just wanted to be more productive. I wanted to do all these things. Now, I didn't say this at the first gathering. People were asking me after the gathering, well, what happened? Yes, the program works fine. I got it all, all going. It's really not the point. The point of the story is this, that there was a process that, that needed to be honored. There was a creator of a, a, a program that was going to make me more productive. And I, if you're like me, I've, I've short-circuited some of these, these steps. Like when it said, you know what, hey, you know what, you need to close down your other programs while this one's installing. Come on, be honest. Have you always done that? No, I, neither have I. And hey, sometimes you get problems. Or, or the classic one is, hey, you know, you need to uh, uh, do this, you know, and you, you, they give you two options, cancel or continue, right? But I always sit there and, and I think there's a third option, you know, the little X in the top of that box. I'm like, your two options can't contain me. I am a free spirit. I am bigger than your two options. I will hit the X, and then nothing happens, and I have to restart and do it all, 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 the whole thing over again. And the, the point is that, that the creator took the time, the creator of this program took the time to know the system, to know, know the things that you need to do in order for this thing to benefit your life. And I think that there's a direct connection that entrusting the creator of a program is the same thing as correct, uh, trusting the creator of the universe. You know, we, we know that there's different things that, 
that God has said, you know what, you do this and it's going to make your life better if you meet me in the morning and pray with me and talk with me and get into my word. That, that you know what, your life is going to be better. And says, you know what, in order to do that though, you need to shut everything down. You need to turn off the TV and the, and the radio, put your phone away, you know, duct tape the kids' mouths, you know, all of these kind of things so you can just focus on me. And we know this, but we try, we try to, to uh, not honor that process. We try to do multiple things while, and, and while trying to get our God moment. But that is not how it works. And the reality is, if we don't trust and honor the process, we end up with disastrous results or results that are less than what our Creator envisions for us. And I believe that this is not popular and it's not fun to honor the process, to trust God in the process. But I think if we adopt the spiritual discipline, that it will lead to a more fuller and meaningful life. So we continue on in our story in verse 9. Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. But when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up or trembling nervously before him, Haman became furious. However, he restrained himself and went on home. Then Haman gathered together his friends in Zeresh, his wife, and boasted to them about his great wealth and his many children. He bragged about the honors the king had given him and how he had been promoted over all the other nobles and officials. Then Haman added, and that's not all, but wait, there's more. Queen Esther invited only me. Listen how he phrases this. How prideful is this guy? Queen Esther invited only me and the king himself to the banquet she prepared for us. And she has invited me to dine with her and the king. He'll be there too. But he's actually an afterthought. Tomorrow. Then he added, but this is all worthless. This is all worth nothing as long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, just sitting there at the palace gate. Hold on a second. Being one of the most wealthy men in the world, being one of the most powerful men in the world, having a wife, and all these children that you are bragging about. It is all worthless as long as a security guard doesn't stand up in your presence. Are you kidding me? So Haman's wife, Suresh, and all his friends suggested, hey, Haman, why don't you set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall? And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on it. Bum! Done! Easy! When this is done, you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. 
This pleased Haman, and he ordered the pole to be set up. All right, lots of, lots of stuff going on here. And I think a lot of times we, we sit there and go like, really? Who is Haman? This guy is like a, a cartoon character, right? Like, who in their right mind would have all the wealth in the world and, and have all of this power and have all of these children that he's apparently very proud of and having this wife and friends and everything and really be bothered by one lone dissenter? And I think here we have kind of a, the flawed idea of, of happiness is, is 100% approval ratings. It's just not life. It is not realistic. It does not happen. This morning before I, I came to church, I decided to put this to the test. I was thinking about this and I'm like, what is a book that is a classic. Like, you would have to be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't like this book. And what came to mind, and I don't know what comes to your mind, but what came to my mind is like a book that just everybody would probably like is Gone with the Wind. Classic? Agreed? Like, you know, I mean, at least we can all agree that it's a well-written, you know, great book. It might not be your favorite story, but it's a classic. So I go to Amazon. I'm like, okay, let's check out the Amazon reviews. You know, that you get five stars for like, you know, hey, this is a great book. I suggest you read it. And then one stars, you know, it, it, it doesn't even belong in my bathroom kind of thing, right? Honestly, I... I, I didn't know what the breakdown would be, but if you go to Amazon, um, at least this morning, when I looked at that, 21 people gave it one star. Really? Gone with the wind? One star. And the comments were just priceless. I, I was like, okay, I got to see. I got I to gotta get behind the, the psyche behind someone who would give, you know, an American classic one star. One person wrote, it was too long. <laughs> it was too long? So you gave it one star? Really? Another one was, and this, you're going to love this one, it wasn't like the movie. <laughs> one star. Uh, and I just, uh, I got to tell you that, that, that this just goes to show you that no matter what you do, like, I doubt any of us, maybe, I hope, but I mean, like, that's pretty high level, level of excellence with Gone the Wind, Gone with the Wind. And to give it one star... So what about, how does that translate into our life? What does this teach us? You know, it teaches us that circumstantial happiness is a jealous mistress because it's never content, it's always demanding, and it is more fragile than crystal. 
And the reality is when you create something, when you push forward, when you decide to, to uh, make or create positive change, there will always be people who will give you one star. It's just the reality of life. And if you go around and you try to just please everybody, you know what you end up with? Elevator music. You end up with something that doesn't please anybody, but it doesn't offend anyone. And I have seen this time and time again, and it might be one of the biggest blights on the church, is because we try to all be so Christian, because we don't want to offend anybody, and we want everybody to be happy. But you know what? It's not a possibility. And I've seen it time and time and time again, and honestly, it breaks my heart every time I see it. I see people with dreams of, of, of going and being the tangible hand of Christ in, in another country. To go and they, they are called to serve. And somebody will say, well, why are you going all the way there? There's people in need here. I've seen it the other way. I, you know, E3 supports 76 under-resourced families in, in Frenchtown. And, uh, and people have said, you know, why, why do you guys do that? You know, those, those people are, are lazy, or shouldn't the government be doing that, or, or, or something like that. Mother Teresa had naysayers. Ain't none of us Mother Teresa. <laughs> and I think that we, we get to the point where if we are, our goal is 100% approval, our lives are going to be miserable. No matter how great what you're doing how beautiful your art, how productive or helpful what you're doing, there's going to be somebody who says, I don't like it. It's a piece of junk. So you have to be faced with, you're faced with the question then. Do I move forward and create my art, create beauty in this world? Do I do what God has called me to do or do I stop because somebody has given my idea or my, my calling one star? And it's really sad and I just wanted to throw, I had a, I, I've had friends wash out of, of the ministry uh, because of this mentality. They don't feel like they, they ever get all the support that they need. In fact, statistically, uh, a pastor does not last more than three years in a, in a local church. That, that only 10% of pastors retire in any um, form uh, of, of ministry. And 
I don't believe it's the church's fault. I believe that it is a focus fault of the pastor. Because if your self-worth is dictated by a 100% approval rating, you're not long being a pastor. And be honest with you, you're not going to have a happy life in whatever you do. And I want to propose a different metrics. I want to propose a different goal. I want to propose a biblical goal for our church, for me, and hopefully for you. Instead of going through life trying to please everybody, and I'm not talking about helpful input and, and, and things like that. We all need people speaking, you know, encouraging words to us and helping us to be better. But I'm, I'm talking just flat out, you know what? I gave gone with the wind one star, and this is what I think is wrong with you kind of people. And you know what I'm talking about. This is what I say. I say, you know what? A higher level biblical goal that I believe that we are called to is to have go for the approval rating of one. And that one is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I say that we accept God's calling on our life, and we are so focused on what God says that we're doing that the dissenters and the accolades fade into the background. And that our goal is that we fulfill the calling that God has given in our life to create our art, to to propagate love in this lost and hurting world, to be the tangible hand of Christ, and that when we have run our race and we have run it well, that we will stand in front of our Creator someday as we, like Esther, walk into the throne room, that our God will lower His scepter and He will say, well done my good and faithful servants, five stars, and high five. It's your choice. You can try to please everyone, and in doing so, being miserable, or you can try to please God. You can accept the purpose that He has given to you and relentlessly pursue it. And by doing so, all the angels will sing. And the only one that matters will give you a standing ovation. You guys pray with me. 